Welcome back and happy new year, guys. This is our first show of 2023 and the 52nd episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. We're starting off as usual with a few housekeeping bits. You can follow us on Instagram at at underscore AIR podcast or visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash AIR podcast to support what we're doing. A big thank you to my Patreon subscribers. I'm so grateful for your support. And I've got some really fantastic interviews lined up for this year already, including this month's, which welcomes composer, producer, and vocalist Caitlin Aurelia Smith to the series. Initially setting out to become an indie singer and musician back in the day, Caitlin discovered the bukla, fell in love, and never looked back. Quickly enamored by the process of making, discovering, and immersing in sound, she has put out countless well-loved albums, which feature her explorations in synthesis and voice, including the famed 2017 record The Kid, 2020's atmospheric Mosaic of Transformation, and her most recent album Let's Turn It Into Sound. Throughout her sonic journey, listening both with her ears and with her body has been at the heart of what she does as a musician. This interest has fueled her writing process, and it's something she's worked hard over the years to train, hoping that by listening in different and more intentional ways, she can more deeply connect with and create with sound. In this conversation, we delve into Caitlin's love of deep listening and somatic hearing, and how these rituals help to enlighten her artistry, her creativity, and her performances. so much for joining me yeah thank you for inviting me so I want to talk a bit about listening today um a couple of years ago you talked a bit about your writing process and you said that when you write you spend a lot of time just sort of listening to the music that's going on inside your head and then you sort of try and replicate that I think that's really interesting and I actually have no clue if that's how all other artists work as well but to me it sounded like kind of a different way of working so I wondered if you could tell me a bit about that process have you always worked in that way and what it's like for you doing that yeah it it changes from time to time but I think inner listening and like developing my inner ear has always been something that has really excited me and a lot of classical artists focus on that and that's that's kind of like where the the origins of composition come from is like learning music theory and your instrument so well that you can hear it inside of you without the instrument. And that has always been a skill that I've just really wanted to acquire. And that I put a lot of time into practicing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's, it's like, you know, actually hearing it, listening to like notes, melodies, the timbre, like everything about it. And then sometimes it's like more somatic and more of like um, hearing like the feeling that I want to feel from 
from the music. Right. Okay. And so you mentioned that this is something that happens in the classical world. Um, so is that something you, you learned in your training? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's something that is just talked about a lot and it's really simultaneously, you know, many hours of spending time with music and like learning scales, all that, like learning technique. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's also like a lot of time put into learning yourself and learning to understand how you as an individual hears music. And I think that like just the nature of practicing music for a long time, you're, you're doing that process because music is such a like self-discovery practice. Like it's I think just because listening in itself is like very much an internal practice. Mm -hmm. In another interview that you gave, you talked a bit about learning how to close your ears. Um, so does that just mean like, I don't know, like tuning everything else out and really listening to yourself or, or what does that mean exactly? Yeah. It's kind of like learning that you have a choice of what you want to hear and what you don't want to hear and also learning, or I guess like more remembering that that choice has been in place your whole life and that you can decide like, oh, now I want to hear everything. Mm -hmm. And it's so easy just, you know, growing up, all of us around so many sounds, we learn to like numb things out. Mm -hmm. And so at some point we have to like either decide, okay, now I want to let that frequency range back in or, um, or I don't. And, and that's something that I'm like always consciously deciding as I'm working on projects of like, okay, I really need to not listen to these things or I need to listen to these things. Mm -hmm. And so are you doing that only in the sense of a creator, like coming from a creative position or I don't know, is this something that has to do with other, other parts in your life? Like, are you making those kinds of conscious decisions when you're going for a walk and you're listening to the sounds around you, or is it really just something that's helping you be creative? I think it's all of it. I really became aware of it when I was at music school, just walking by the practice rooms. And I also worked at a performance theater mm -hmm. and there were sometimes acts that I didn't want to hear. And so I learned how to like turn, turn it off so that like, if I was by like a super loud siren, I could decide not to hear that mm. and, and it wouldn't affect me. So it's like also like a nervous system preservation technique. Uh-huh. Yeah, it sounds like it would be really helpful for like before a show, for example, and if there's you just need to kind of be present and be on your own sort of thing. Yeah, that's really helpful. Or just like when you're, I guess, like anytime you want to go inside and compose music inside, but you're in a super crowded, loud place. Mm. It's like you can turn off all the surrounding sounds and, and just listen to what you want to hear inside of you. Mm -hmm. And so you're also doing this with visuals inside your head, I think, right? In your Red Bull interview, I guess that was quite a while ago now, um, you talked a bit about seeing colors and uh, colors and visuals and how that filters into what you're listening to and what ends up coming out. Yeah. And I'm not like a, a visual artist. Um, I, or I guess I should just say, I don't have like the skill set to create what, what goes on visually for me, but I love to collaborate with visual artists and, mm -hmm. and try and explain some of the things, but also like trust their process and collaborate. 
Um, another thing that you mentioned in a previous interview, I'm not sure what this process is exactly called, but you said it was something like hearing a sound and then figuring out how many sounds are in that sound and how they work together and what order they're in. Um, can you talk a bit about that, that part of this listening process for you? That is kind of like a, um, I'm trying to think about it. It's like the, the inverse of like, if you were building a composition from scratch where like, say you're building a composition and you start layering and then that turns into a song. It's like doing the opposite process, but with one sound where, where it's like taking the sound of a, of like a door opening and listening to it and, and asking like how many sounds are actually making that sound of the door opening. Is it a layered sound? Like, is there like a beginning sound that is like the attack and then like another sound that's the transient and then breaking those apart and being like, okay, that first sound, how many sounds are making that one? And just like going further and further into that process. And that has been a really amazing way to learn sound design. Mm. It reminds me of, this is such a random example, but it reminds me of, um, you know, the show Law and Order. So there's like that sound from the beginning of the of the credits that's like the dun-dun sound. And apparently that sound is made up of like 50 different little sounds all put together, including like the sound of monks chanting or something and a, a bunch of other really random sounds coming together to make one like really iconic sound. But I think that's really interesting, um, just this sort of process of going through what makes up the sounds that we hear. So I guess I'm wondering how or why is all of this important to your creative process as a musician? Um, for many reasons, I think, um, because I make all the sounds that I use to create with, it's important for me to, to know how to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I guess, um, as far as like the internal listening, you know, like the inner ear thing, I think that, that for me personally, I mean, I think I can't say across the board because I think everyone will have a different experience with it. But for me, the biggest thing that it's like brought into my life is, is embodiment of music. Mm. And, and I think that that's when you like truly know a piece is when you're able to hear it inside of you. And that's like usually what conductors have to do to mm. be able to lead an orchestra is like, they need to like be able to hear it inside of them. Right. I've never thought about it like that. Yeah. And that's like when you, you can like tell the difference between like a note that someone just played in a rushed way or a note that someone played from, from like a different emotion. Um, do you get that sort of deep knowledge of all the music that you make? Yeah. For the most part, like I usually won't be able to finish something until I know internally what it's supposed to sound like. Can you speak a bit about I guess just to contextualize this, like, can you speak a bit about how all these processes worked for your most recent album, Let's Turn It Into Sound? Um, like, did you use these, these sort of processes and these listening techniques that we've been talking about on that album? And maybe you can tell me about, I don't know, one of the tracks that um, sort of connects to that. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also gotten to a place with my own music where um, it happens so fast now, the internal listening that it's like 
it's kind of hard to explain, but like for this album, it was like two months of, of just like, I knew it. I just knew everything that I, that it was supposed to be. And, Mm. and I just like heard it one day, like really fast, um, the whole thing and was like, okay, I know what to do. And, Mm. and that's usually how it happens. And I kind of like wait until that happens to, to write an album. It's like, I get filled with all the music for it. And I haven't learned for myself yet what fills it, like what initiates that process. And that's something that I really want to learn for myself. Um, Cause it's really different for when I'm working on music for other people, it's a really different type of inner listening than when I'm, when I'm making an album, mm-hmm. when I'm working on music for other people, it's like more of a translator role mm-hmm. where I want to use all my knowledge of music to translate for this person what they hired me to do. Right. And then for my own music, it's like simultaneously me expressing myself and this like inner listening process of just what music do I have access to in the ether in the world? Um, I was going to ask because it it sounds quite like mathematical to me or like a, a bit more sort of technical uh, a lot more to do with like understanding music. And I wondered if you ever get into a space where it's a bit more like free flowing or a bit less sort of complex. Um, but it sounds like you do, like it sounds like for, for your own music, it's a bit more sort of expressive. Yeah, I feel like it's always both. It's usually not just one or the other. It's always like a combination of intuitive and using like the technical knowledge that I've learned. So which side of that would you say has been harder for you to develop like you mentioned that you've been it's taken a lot of training to get to this point where you have that sort of inner listening um but I think that the sort of free-flowing side of it could also be quite difficult to to do properly like for for me for example as a writer I there's no such thing as a like free flow state as a non-fiction writer in the same way that I think there is for fiction writers um so I wonder like which which of those sides is it has been more difficult for you to get the hang of they've both kind of been growing simultaneously like pretty evenly I think I think I've always had some some like awareness of wanting to to develop them both evenly and and they've both always been present in my life of like I've I've always felt simultaneously like an intuitive person and a pragmatic person Mm -hmm. I interviewed the composer Ludovico Ainaudi last week, and he said that his favorite way of working is actually in this state where he's not even really thinking about what he's doing at all. Like um, he's just totally connected to himself rather than even thinking about what his next move is going to be. Is that something you can relate to? Like, has there been times where you're in that sort of, you know, really self-connected state where you don't have to think about what you're doing? I would say like the flow state is definitely like always the the prime spot and sometimes sometimes I still have to work when I'm not in the flow state and and have been trying to learn like different ways for myself to get into it when I'm not in it Mm -hmm. yeah that definitely resonates like something my teachers have always said is like learn everything to forget everything Mm -hmm. and that's always really resonated
you feel like doing all of this inner listening makes you have a kind of deeper connection with music? Like it seems to me that it's maybe a bit of an experience on a deeper level rather than just hearing beautiful music. Um, it's a bit more of like an intentional approach. I mean, for me personally, it's helped me in all areas of life just because I think um, it's like, you know, it's helped me understand when I'm reacting to something or when I'm like in a place to decide on something from clarity. So I guess like mindfulness and it's, and it's definitely helped me with, um, with like getting to understand situations that I'm in by like making listening the forefront Mm -hmm. and then musically for sure. I feel like it's like, I don't know. I guess I've always felt like it's the number one in music, Mm. at least for me personally, is being able to listen. Have you always approached music in that way? I feel like it's always been there because when I first got into music, it was from watching someone play the piano and just seeing that it looked like it felt good for them. Mm. And then I started to like try and mimic that action when I would sit down at the piano and listen to like what they played and like just learning by ear at first. Mm-hmm. So I feel like listening was still the very first thing for me. I like that. I think it's something that a lot of people don't really consider as important in music, weirdly. Um, I know that also body listening or resonating is something that's also really important for you as a composer and also just as a lover of music. Um, can you explain a bit about what that means exactly, uh, like listening with your body. Yeah, I guess I don't really know anything different. That's just how I've always heard music is where it's resonating in my body. And um, because our body is a resonating cavity. And so it's like the same as when you're in a, a room and it has like a standing wave, that's because some sound that you're making is at the same resonant frequency of that room. And so it's like creating a feedback loop and that happens in our bodies as well. Like when you get goosebumps, when you're listening to something, Mm -hmm. that's like a version of that. Mm -hmm. And there's many different examples of that. Um, And I think I've just always had that as a part of my listening experience. So, so I don't really know any different. I was going to ask if you had to train yourself to do that. You know, we were talking about training yourself to close your ears before. Um, and I understand that certain certain body resonances like goosebumps, as you mentioned, just happen naturally. Um, but I, yeah, I, I did wonder if it was something that you had to sort of learn to do. I mean, I think the only thing that that is like something that I practice regularly is like checking if I'm apathetic or not at times in our life, we all go through like, like times where we don't want to feel things. And and again, that's a choice to like turn that on and off. And so before I work on a project, I usually check in with myself of like, am I ready to feel things? Cause that's such a big part of, of making music. Music usually provokes feelings. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be able to feel myself while I'm creating. And so do you feel that (laughs) those feelings (laughs) Um, every time that you're, you know, whether you're performing or creating or listening to music, uh, is that connection always there? Yeah. I usually can't 
make something if I'm not feeling. Um, and so then I usually instead take some time to like do some personal work of like, okay, what happened that I don't want to feel right now? Do you also create with that kind of physicality in mind? Like for example, uh, maybe you use certain frequencies that resonate more because you know that they'll impact the listener in a more physical way. I don't know if that's actually how it works. I'm just guessing. But Yeah, yeah, definitely. And like, it's really hard to know how anyone's going to be listening to music because there's so many ways to listen to it. And like what device has like set up its own compressing frequency situation. But I love to think about textures and those mm -hmm. are things that I love to feel like I love feeling crunchy sounds and I love feeling like little tickly sounds. And um, yeah, I think about all of that stuff. Is that just like a trial and error sort of thing? Like you, yeah, you try it out on a, on a song or on a record and if it seems to work, then you do it again kind of thing. Uh, or is there like a way to, I don't know, is there a way to know maybe you have somebody that uh, listens to your music before you put it out kind of thing? I mean, I guess it depends on what I'm making music for. Like if I'm making it for someone else, then, then it's like um, trying to make sure that they feel the things that they want to feel. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm making it for myself, then, then it's easier because then it's, I'm just the judge of it. So, mm. so if it makes me feel certain things, then I go with that. Yeah. Because I guess you can't really base it on, like, you can't really base it off of what you think everybody else will feel because there's just no way, no real way of knowing, I guess. Yeah. And I think it's, it's at least for me, it's like a um, psychologically hard thing to like make music with other people in mind, unless they're hiring me to do it, then it's like mm -hmm. a different, a different process. But when I'm making my, it's like hard for me to express myself freely while thinking about how others would react. Right. And so are you also a believer in the healing properties of music, things like sound baths or um, the Kalundi sequence, things like that, that we can heal through hearing and feeling music? Um, I think that that everyone has their own definition of healing and like healing for me translates to like understanding. That's like usually what I equate that word to. And so sound baths to me personally are just like really beautiful experiences that, um, that I, that I love to enjoy. And then, and then I think that there are also um, definitely like frequency um, cancellations that can happen with sound where, you know, it's, it's like a production technique where if you want to check that your song is getting exported correctly, you can like import it into the same session. Like you can take the export and import it into your same session and then flip the phase and that'll cancel out all the frequencies except for the ones that didn't get exported correctly. Hmm. And or like, say you want to take the bass out of a mix. You can also do like phase inverting to take that out. And, and so I think that that stuff is really real. So if there are like frequencies in our body and our being that, um, that 
are getting canceled out by like the things we're listening to or that are like provoking feelings that then help us like understand things. But I don't know. I think it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just feeling good or enjoying life is like healing. So yeah, I, I think about it like that too. And so what about um, Mosaic of Transformation, which you, I think you premiered on the Calm Meditation app. So were you thinking about all of these things that you just mentioned um, when you were making that album? That album was a different intention and in that that just um, was an opportunity that got presented to me, like the Calm app thing. That wasn't mm-hmm. the intention with the album. Okay. The intention with the album was like kind of more stemming from like my neoclassical roots of like wanting to create a more orchestral album. Okay. And then, yeah, of course, like lots of inner listening and like all of those things are, are kind of always there during the time that I wrote it, I was going through like, just like a lot of gratitude for electricity because that's how I make music is with electricity. And, and I was just feeling in like, such awe of that force of nature and that music can be made from it and and so the album is like my sonic response to that awe of just wow electricity exists and i can make music with it less of a like spiritual I kind of assumed that you had made it with I don't know meditation or some sort of like holistic nourishment in in mind I know it's a little bit um yeah that gets confused a lot (laughs) (laughs) um and I think it might be because of that calm app thing which I'm really glad that I did that Mm. Um, but that wasn't like an intention with the album It, it was just an opportunity that was presented um as the album was coming out but either way I'm sure that people do listen to it with what I mentioned in mind this sort of nourishment or um spirituality and I I feel like maybe anything can can any type of music can have that quality for you if that's how you're listening to it if that makes sense totally and I'm deeply honored if anyone does (laughs) listen to it like that um earlier we talked a bit about listening to or experiencing music in a kind of deeper way. So is it also a goal of yours that, that other people have that same experience with music, that deeper, uh, deeper experience with music? I asked this because you mentioned in another interview that you were helping other people to explore body resonance and somatic hearing and things like that, and just generally listening in a different or deeper way. I wouldn't say it's a goal of mine. Um, but it's something that I love doing and have studied a lot. Mm-hmm. And, 
and um, enjoy offering sessions of that. And like the main sessions that I really enjoy offering right now are ones that help people with creative blocks. Cause um, I've always experienced creative blocks as like a really pragmatic thing to work through. Even if it's like you're experiencing an emotional block with it, there's like usually a really easy process to get out of it and to like come back to the holistic creative self. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's something that I'm really enjoying offering right now. And, um, and that always includes the inner listening and the resonance and, and then for people who are musicians and have like a interest in learning how to hear music internally, I also love teaching that and encouraging that Mm -hmm. the somatic resonance stuff that kind of stems more from like outside of music. I've also studied different um, like somatic therapy Mm -hmm. um, modalities. And so that kind of combines with that work of just getting people in touch with, with their feeling body. And then they tend to like all cross over. You wrote two really cool little pocketbooks about this topic, listening and somatic hearing. And I really like them. And what you were saying about getting people out of a sort of creative block with these listening strategies, it reminded me a lot of the Brian Eno oblique strategies. Can you tell me a bit about what you, what inspired you to write the these two little books? Yeah, um, I actually haven't, um, I haven't interacted with the oblique strategies yet. And I really want to, because a few people have said that. Mm. Um, But yeah, both of those books were, I keep on calling them like my heart's poetry of Mm -hmm. just like, like the first one was coming from a place that's similar to like when you see a really beautiful sunset and you're like, you're like, oh, I want someone else to see this sunset. And so it was coming from that appreciation of like, listening is so cool. Does that like, do other people think listening's cool? (laughs) (laughs) And, and then the somatic hearing one um, is kind of a collection of my inquisitive journey with like what is sound as I was writing, let's turn it into sound. And so it's like a collection of, of thoughts and questions that I went on or like the journey that I went on as I was creating that album. So how was it to put into words the sort of practices or ideas that I assume are pretty personal to you and your way of working. It felt pretty easy for both of them. It was like not really coming from a personal place, even though it, it was, (laughs) that's kind of a funny way to answer it, but it's, it was more coming from like my appreciation for sound and for being able to hear sound. Um, and I think like whenever I'm coming from a place of like appreciation, it's really easy to write things about it. Um, kind of like when you're like really stoked on, on someone and you're like, oh, I could compliment them for days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like that kind of feeling. So what kinds of advice or, uh, information is in these books that has most helped you as a composer or creative person? Um, I think like. The listening one is all about how how many things can influence our listening. And it's it's like a gentle reminder of like, where are you listening from right now in your life? Because 
you know, it's kind of like, say you're really mad at someone and they're talking to you. It's often that like, when you're mad at someone, you're not going to really hear them. You're going to like, listen for what fuels your anger at them. Mm -hmm. And you're not really listening objectively. And that can happen with music too. Like say it like reminds you of something, then you're listening through that memory or Mm -hmm. say like, say you're like really hungover and you're not listening physically to your like body's capacity or you're like really sick or say you lost like frequencies or say you're traumatized, like trauma has a really big influence on how we listen. And so it's kind of just a gentle reminder of how do you get back to objective listening? What is influencing your listening right now? And, and then the cards are, different exercises of like checking where you're listening from. And then the somatic hearing one is, I guess, more about perspective and, and like, how are you experiencing sound? That one is more coming from like, like, um, you know, like there's, there's a part in it where it's talking about how at haunted sites, there's, often ultrasonic sounds that are there, which are the sounds that you hear in your bones rather than with your ears. Uh And so they give you that like fear feeling in your bones. And that stuff was just really interesting to me of like, there's so much beyond just like how we hear with our ears. We have all these other parts of our body that hear. And so it's just different questions about, about like perspective and the way that we interact with sound each day. Um, what you were saying about the way we listen to music when we're in certain moods or when we, our mind is uh, thinking about certain things is super interesting. I, I didn't realize how much I would relate to that. Is that something that you have to like continually work on? Like, is this, is this listening, is listening going to be an ongoing sort of process for you? Yeah, definitely. I think like emotions are for most people, like something that we'll interact with for the rest of our lives. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like for me to do my job to the way that I want to do it. um, I like to learn like, okay, what's my non-emotional state? Mm -hmm. Like, or what's the difference between my apathy state, my centered, like non-emotional objective listening state and my emotional state. And like, how do I use them when I want to use them? And how do I get to the centered objective listening when I need to? I was reading in, in an interview that you did where you talked about when you first started experimenting with the bukla, you spent time listening to two notes over the course of a year and becoming more sensitive to how they changed. Uh, and so I wonder how um, what you just mentioned about our emotions sort of tying into all of this, how did, how did your emotions influence how you heard those two notes over the course of the year? Or what did you notice about how they changed? Well, I feel like at that time I was in a really centered objective listening place because I had just let go of all of the pressure that I put on myself to become a professional musician Mm -hmm. and like decided to do a different career and, and was just in this like pure joy place of like no expectations. Um, So I felt like I was like really hearing the overtone series and like really hearing frequencies. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until later that I like started to 
understand the influence of emotions just because at that time I was just like so enamored with frequencies and just like really hearing like, oh, wow. Okay. This one frequency has, you know, the fundamental and then it has all of these overtones and overtones interact with each other and create melodies just in the way that they're interacting. So like two notes can create so many melodies just by the way that their overtones are interacting. Mm -hmm. It felt more like a process of listening within the sound for like what music is inside of this one sound. Hmm. Wow. That's so cool. You mentioned this state of like letting go of all this pressure. How is that now? (laughs) Now that you are a professional musician and you have different pressures going on, um, how has that impacted your sort of objective listening? It's interesting. Um, it's like a, a different pressure than it was at that time. Mm-hmm. Now it's like a, a pressure of feeling like I have so much music. Like I hear so much music and, and like sometimes feel like, like if I could, I would release like an album a month. <laughs> but so feeling like a little bit of pressure to not share as much as I want to share. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different kind of pressure but that one still definitely influences me. And so I usually just have to like, uh, I guess I don't have other words for it besides like sink into boredom because boredom is kind of the doorway of what it looks like at first, but, but it's more just relaxing of letting go, surrendering into like coming back to the present moment. It's not that I get bored all the time, but it's like using that as a tool, turning off all your senses. Just to go back to listening and uh, the bukla, do you think that listening is like particularly important with an instrument like the bukla because it's quite un- unpredictable? Um, like, do you, would you say you have to be paying closer attention or like be ready to adjust things at a moment's notice, for example? Yeah, definitely. The tuning is something that that I'm always kind of like listening really carefully for and changing as I'm playing and. Um, listening for the center of the tone because there's like many gradients within the center of the tone. There's flat, there's sharp, but there's also a lot of like sense in between them, like C-E-N-T-S. And so it's like keeping one part of my brain always listening for like, okay, where's the scent drifting? Is it up or down? And then tweaking it as I'm going. But it seems like maybe that also makes it fun a a bit like do you like that about the bukla that you have to be sort of so like actively participating in playing it oh my gosh I love it so much because I I feel like I'm a very active person like I have lots of energy and so getting to have um to have an interface with music that involves like my hands Mm -hmm. moving a lot also really puts me in a flow state 
So I really like it. Mm. But what about when you're performing? Like I can imagine that listening is really crucial during a performance because it's not only listening to the sounds that you're making, but also the environment and the crowd and things like that. Like, did it take you a while to be able to play live in a way that you were happy with? Yeah, I'm still learning that one because every venue is different and the way that you hear sound in every venue is different. And some venues I have to rely solely on like the way I'm feeling the sound because I can't really hear myself. And then sometimes I can like really hear it and get more fine tuned in the mixing, but I'm still navigating, like using the turning, turning off listening. Mm -hmm. Like at first when I started performing, I didn't have anything turned off. And so it was like really overwhelming, Mm. just like all of the things I had to listen to. And now I have certain parts of it turned off until I'm like ready. It sounds like a lot of things going on (laughs) when you're performing. Like it would be hard for you to kind of get into a not really thinking about it flow state when you have so much going on that you have to concern yourself with, if that makes sense. Like it's a bit different to when you're just at home creating something. It's actually the opposite for me. It's Mm -hmm. like something that puts me into a flow state is is like being able to navigate a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm usually always in a flow state when I'm performing. That's like that's a place where where I can like really rely on it that it's going to happen and I think it's because of the added element of like connection with other humans puts it into that place. And like there's something about movement that immediately puts me in a flow state and so my live sets usually involve like a lot of movement. Mm-hmm. with my hands and I'll intentionally place gear really far from the other hand so that it has to go pretty far. Mm, that's interesting. And what about adding your voice into performances? Does that complicate things or does that just add to this kind of meditative state that you're in? I started with singing and playing piano and guitar when I was a teenager. So I feel like singing while playing is, um, is really comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Um, But definitely like navigating the vocal processing um, is another thing to think of. But I really enjoy multitasking. Like my brain really likes this type of multitasking. Hmm. And so just in general, like how are you hoping to continue to delve into um, listening um, and creativity? In what other ways do you hope to let that relationship grow and evolve? I guess just to see what happens next, kind of like um, with any relationship, like to just see, see where we go next. Is it important, for example, for you to listen to a lot of different music and a lot of different sounds and kind of find inspiration all over the place in order for your creativity to grow? I have like really set times that I listen to music and then I never get inspiration from music but I love listening to music and I love like I have a DJ show and I love curating, Mm -hmm. but I tend to not listen to music for inspiration that comes from a different place for me. So when you say that inspiration comes from a different place for you, what, what place is that exactly? I haven't figured out what is like the through line, but it's something about like, like an aha moment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I usually have to go through a pretty big life experience 
um, like it tends to, to come from, at least for my own albums, it, it tends to come from like a really big change, like a really big learning. And, and then when it's for, for other people, like when I'm doing work for hire, then it's just instantly from talking to the other person uh-huh. and from hearing about what they want to communicate. And then just being so excited to have the role of like, oh, I get to translate what you are feeling into sound. Because you mentioned that you're not listening to music for inspiration, but you also said that you're keeping, you know, keeping an open mind about what you do listen to. <laughs> Is that just for like the joy of listening to listening to things? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I love to dance and I love creating moods and I love to DJ. I mean, I love music. It's just a different place, like a different form of listening of like, I'm listening to this for inspiration. Like that's a different place for me. And so I'm just listening to enjoy music. You've been listening to Caitlin Aurelia Smith for Air Podcast, episode 52. We'll be back on the last Wednesday of the month, so check back in February for the next episode. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram at at underscore air podcast or visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast. Thanks for listening.